0: Uh, Hello, good morning, welcome to our gathering. Keep your Bibles right where they are. They should be on Daniel 6, 1 through 3. That's going to be our text for this morning. I think if you were to uh, do a word association test for the name Daniel, like if you were to say, okay, what do you associate with the name Daniel? I think that probably people would associate the name Daniel with Lion's Den, right? And that is the story and narrative and historical event that we have reached in the book of Daniel, in our study of Daniel. And uh, I think that uh, the lion's den is probably, undoubtedly, the best known incident in Daniel's life. You might be thinking the fiery furnace, but that narrative didn't include him. It was his three buddies. And so, uh, Daniel's big event and incident, if you will, was the lion's den. And, uh, and I think it's probably one of the best-known Bible stories, I would think. Most people have heard of that, I guess. And as I said, we have arrived at this wonderful story in Daniel 6, and I'm excited to announce that we're going to spend some time uh, taking a look at it. So I have taken chapter 6, this storyline, because this chapter has a singular narrative and storyline, and I've divided it into basically seven sections. And uh, what I did was I read this chapter over and over and over, and I thought, well, I kind of wanted to take, you know, deal with it the same way that I dealt with chapter five last week, because it's one sweeping narrative, but uh, this one has some breaks in it where you can pause and focus on the doctrine and theology, if you will, or truth of each section. And so this one you can divide up, I think, easier than you could uh, the narrative that we looked at last week. So seven weeks roughly beginning today, and we're just going to really study this story and see what God has for us through it. Maybe draw some examples from the text that can help to, to build our faith and shape our lives. Um, as we, like Daniel did sought to glorify God in all that he did. Uh, and, and of course, I'll, I'll work to um, make parallels uh, from the text to Jesus, because he is uh, really the ultimate uh, target of Scripture, if you will. It all points to him, the prophets and everything point to him, and so we're going to definitely make some parallels to Jesus, uh, and I think that's important. So, And I'm always encouraged when I find reference to Jesus in the Old Testament. So let's start at 1A. I've kind of divided some of these verses up into A's and B's. I'm just going to start off with these three words. It pleased Darius. So our story, the Lion's Den narrative, if you will, it begins with Darius, a reference to Darius, who was Darius, and I know that last week at the end of the sermon, I talked about him a little bit, uh, but I think it's important that we, since we're going to be in this chapter for so long and that his name is mentioned, which is important because God wastes no words or names in Scripture. I think it's important that we learn some things about him. Uh, Many leading biblical scholars agree uh, that Darius was a man named Ugbaru, and I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's spelled U-G-B-A-R-U. Is that how you spell it? Say it? G- well, it's U-G-B-A-R-U. I don't know. That's what I have here. Is that what you have in your Bible? This is why I've told you to switch to the ESV. <laughs> he's, I, don't, he's, I don't know if he's mentioned by, by the name U-G-B-A-R-U or whatever you want to call it in Scripture, but history uh, definitely refers to him, and he might be mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. But anyways, this person did exist, um, and he was the incredibly talented, brilliant military commander who basically developed and executed the assault on Babylon, or the city of Babylon, and, which led to, you know, the death of Belshazzar, the last of the Babylonian kings and the conquering of the city. And so this guy was the, maybe the General Mattis, uh, if you will, who's now our, I don't know, Secretary of Defense or something of that nature. The Swartzkopf, is that the guy's name? That was the incredible military commander of the first Gulf War. This guy, Baru, or whatever Paul Rogers says. Uh, LAUGHTER was, was a military commander. He was a general, and he was a brilliant strategist and, and just gutsy as all get out. And uh, basically, the story goes as follows. During the siege of Babylon, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, which would be modern-day Iran, uh, was called away to another military front. And before leaving uh, his post as they were besieging Babylon, he basically appointed his partner, if you will, Ugbaru, a.k.a. Darius the Mede, to be his vassal king once the city and kingdom fell. So he's like this military commander and, and Cyrus, who is Cyrus the Great, one of the greatest of all kings of antiquity, basically said, you know, you're my partner, you're, you're the Mede side of the Medo-Persian Empire, and once you take and sack the city, I have to go away and, and deal with other things in another place, because this Medo-Persian Empire was massive. You're going to be my vassal king for the next year or so. I'm appointing you as king over the Babylonian territory, if you will. And then, of course, the story goes, Darius, ugg if you will, conquered the city, killed Belshazzar, and ascended the throne in place of Cyrus. Now, we must understand that it was very common in those days uh, for people to be given multiple names. Uh, So it is totally likely that Ugberu could have had the name Darius, vice versa. Uh, We saw that uh, back in the earlier chapters of Daniel, where Daniel's friends and Daniel himself were given Chaldean names uh so so it was common in those days for people to be given multiple names and what i'm doing is building a rationale for how this is possible and i think that's was the case with uberu if you will in persian darius translates as supporter or um preserver if you will that's kind of the persian translation of darius and and it it that kind of fits with a military commander who supports his king, right? So it, it could be that, you know, that uh, Cyrus himself had given Baru this name of Darius. So we don't know for sure. There's a lot of theories. I think that's probably the way that it planned out. Don't put that at the bank and say, I'm running with Baru, or whatever his name was. Uh, but I think that that's Out of the three or four explanations that I read, some of them made no sense at all, and you just sit there and scratch your head saying, how did you come up with this? Maybe that person didn't have the Holy Spirit and doesn't see things in Scripture the way they should. Uh, Other theories and other scholars say that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. Uh, So when you see Darius, you're supposed to be thinking of Cyrus the Great, Uh, but I think that verse 28 refutes that theory pretty plainly. Uh, It and that's the end of our passage. It says, Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. Uh, and it, to me, it looks like those are two different kings. Um, you can play on the words a little bit and, and say that, you know, he prospered under the reign of Darius, who is Cyrus, but that's not the way that the translators translated it. So I think you're seeing two different kings here. So I don't know if that theory holds water. Um, we see that there are two people here. And then over in Daniel 9.1, it says, "...in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I think, I don't know, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans." So that particular passage shows us that Darius was basically appointed to his kingship. He was made king. Well, who would have made him king? a greater king would have made him king, unless it's a reference to the Lord because the Lord appoints kings and brings up kings, raises up kings and brings kings down. But I think that what we're seeing here is that he was appointed by someone else, a greater king, if you will. And in comparison, Cyrus was a far greater king. So who would have made him king? Uh, It's very likely that Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, would have made him king. And so uh, you had this, Alliance or partnership between Darius the Mede, Ugbaru, and Cyrus the Persian. And together, they represented at this point in history the Medo Persian Empire. And that, as I said last week, is the next empire to rise to power uh, after Babylonia is defeated. You know, the golden head, which is Babylon, is brought down, and the silver shoulders and arms are brought into focus, and that's Medo Persia. And so that's what we see playing out here. He is likely the vassal king for Cyrus in place of Cyrus. What did Darius, Ugbaru if you will, do after he was appointed to the throne over this particular district or area, this part of Medo-Persia? Look at 1b. He basically set over the kingdom 120 satraps uh, to be throughout the whole kingdom. So the first thing he did was gather qualified people, and usually they were tied to family, uh, and he basically built his top-tier leadership team. He assembled his cabinet, if you will, which is what we see the president today doing. So the first thing he does is he begins to build his top-tier leadership team, which consists of 120 Satraps, and that's the right way to pronounce that. So, Cheryl, 20 points. Um, At the beginning, because it looks weird, right? Satrap? Satrap. At the beginning, Paul will probably correct me later, it is not Satrap. At the beginning, he's an English guy. At the beginning of chapter 3, I'm not. At the beginning of chapter (laughs) 3, I just can't help it. i got to take shots at myself. Uh, Chapter 3, we learned that a Satrap, way back a couple of months ago, when we were studying chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2, we learned that a satrap was a leader of a province, and satrap really is tied to Persia. It's not really a Babylonian concept or a Hebrew concept or position or title. It's, it's kind of strictly Persian, but Daniel writes after these events, shortly after them, and he uses this common leadership term. It's a Persian phrase or word, if you will, and it has to do with being a leader of a province, as also a chief representative to the king. So this would be like a cabinet member of today, if you would. Now, comparatively speaking, I believe when I was studying back at the end of chapter 2 and 3, that I had read somewhere that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed somewhere between 10 to 12 satraps over his kingdom. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylonia. He took over for his father and, you know, there were kings after him, but his kingdom was very large and very powerful. But his need over his kingdom, to rule over his entire kingdom and all these districts, he needed 10 to 12 satraps. So this shows that Neb's, and I, I like to refer to him that because it, you're less likely to screw his name up, uh, Neb's kingdom was significantly smaller than that of Darius, right? Darius had to appoint 120 satraps. So now envision the geography and how large and how many more people Medo-Persia involved as opposed to uh, Babylon. He needed 10 times, Darius needed 10 times as many leaders, as many satraps, provincial leaders uh, than Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because his kingdom was 10 times larger. Medo-Persia And I think that we're all familiar with Babylon, not just because we've studied it over the last several months, but I think most people have heard of Babylon, but it was a massive, massive kingdom, very, very powerful kingdom of its day, the most powerful up to that point. And now we're looking at the silver shoulders, Medo-Persia, which basically it would be like looking at Sacramento, Medo-Persia, and then looking at Ceres as Babylon, So you have this massive kingdom and this other kingdom that's reasonably good that has only two Starbucks. I don't know how many Starbucks you have in your town, Rhonda. It's important. So let's look at what else Darius did. So he appoints these 120 satraps, and then he does something else in 2A. So he gets these leaders, got 120 of them. They're gonna oversee all of these districts. I gotta have them because I got a huge kingdom. And then it says in 2a and over them three officials of whom Daniel was one. Okay? So Darius, King Darius appointed three high officials over the satraps. Over the satraps. And each high official managed 40 satraps each. Do the math. So you have three guys that were chosen as upper echelon leaders, the highest leaders, if you will, in a sense, and they oversaw 40 satraps each. So this group of three, these high officials, these guys are the guys. These are the guys right here. And it says that Daniel was one of these people in this high authority or high official position. Now, now let's just talk about the qualifications for one of these high officials for a moment Uh, traditionally speaking uh, you had to be tied to the king and in the bloodline and all that to serve as a satrap or in any of these things and and that is clearly not the case with Daniel he's a Hebrew and he's an import right he was brought out of Jerusalem he's a Judean and he was you know exiled and at this point the dude's like 80 years old if I got a job like this at 80 I wouldn't be I wouldn't know what to do You know, I'm probably not going to be able to function at 80, I eat too much junk. But this guy's like 80 years old now, and here he is, one of these top three, and usually you had to be royalty or tied to somebody. And Daniel's an outsider, he really is. He's a Judean, he's Jewish, he doesn't have any business being in a position like this if you think about it. But what Darius did was he was looking for certain qualities among those whom he thought could serve in this role. And there are two of these qualities that are actually mentioned in verse 4. We're not looking at verse 4 today. We're going to look at it more in more depth next week, but we have to just reference it. Remember, this is one narrative, so we're going to have to jump around a little bit. But I think that some of the qualities are, are sitting there in verse 2. And verse 2 speaks of, of Daniel and, and who he was and, and his character and his qualities, if you will. It says Daniel in verse 4 was faithful. So there'd be one of the qualities. And then it says, without error or fault. Now, I don't know how that's translated in your NASB or anything else, but in my ESV, which is a fantastic, awesome, incredible, God-inspired, inerrant translation. Just got to get it in there. Faithful and without error or fault. Now, in the original language, faithful translates as or has to do with being trustworthy. So, do do any of your translations say uh, trustworthy instead of faithful? It certainly could. It could say trustworthy and not faithful. Well, here they're synonymous. Uh, Daniel had proved to be a faithful, a.k.a. trustworthy, servant. Now, you just think about his... Resume for a moment here up to this point. He had served under six kings, right? Nebuchadnezzar and, you know, some of Nebuchadnezzar's kids and relatives and Belshazzar. He had served faithfully under six kings prior to Darius. And he had never, we might put it in practical terms, he had never stolen anything. He had never shared classified information uh, he, you know, was never involved in an email scandal. Uh, just checking to see what happened there. Nothing. No response. Is there a pulse in here? Oh, no, he's going political. Well, it's a modern-day example. Or failed in any way, shape, or form to do his job. He had done his job with total, in total excellence. And, 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 and I know that that's not Primarily because he was serving these kings. That's part of it. But he did his job in such a way, with such character and integrity, with such precision, because not because he was serving alone an earthly king, but because he was serving the king of kings. Okay? When when you see your profession or position. As service to the king of kings, you're more likely to do a really, really good job than you are if you're talking about some temporal earthly ruler that's in front of you, right? I mean, these earthly rulers, these little K kings, these bosses and stuff, we love them, but man, they can be really tough, right? They can. Carl's thinking, don't go there, because I used to work for him. He's thinking, don't get into this, man. I don't have to walk out on you. Well, you know, we're people, we're all people, we're all sinners. Some of us are saved by grace, we're all broken, we're all selfish, we're all this, we're all that. Really, really tough to to work in a position and to serve under another human being. It's difficult in our marriages, is it not? Some of your eyes went, poof, amen, brother, you know? But when you see your marriage as a marriage to Christ, when you see your Position as as I, I'm serving the Lord here. I'm serving the King of Kings. I'm serving my husband, yes, but the, the King of Kings is whom I'm truly, in the deepest sense, serving. Or you say that about your wife? You know, it, it just it changes things. And I think there's too many of us that are focused on what's right in front of us, and we're not relating what we're doing to the Kingdom of God or to Jesus Christ, who is the most loving and benevolent and kind, and merciful boss, if you will, or king. Now, the deal with Daniel is he just did such an awesome job, and, and, and he was the kind of guy, you know, and uh, he was a guy, but we have gals that do this too, who serve and, and, and work with excellence. If you just gave this guy a task, he just did it with excellence. If you said, you know, I need X, Y, and Z, he, he produced X, Y, and Z, and I think he was the type of guy, since he was serving the king of kings, that added a few more letters to the alphabet there you know he just did the best that he could if you gave him information he guarded it with his life you know I mean the guy was a top-tier leader he's serving right alongside the king he's not the king but he's a servant to the king he's the next person in line in a sense and you know these guys talk about important things and uh, you know there's a lot of information and stuff that's passed around and this guy would guard that information with his life if if he, if he gave him a work schedule, let's just make it super practical. He, he was the kind of guy that showed up a little early every time and punched the clock when he was supposed to. And guess what? He was not the kind of guy who left 15, 20 minutes early. He just did what he was supposed to do. And I think it's primarily because he was serving the king of kings and he realized the eyes of my true king are on me and I want to please him in all things. We would call Daniel, a model employee, raise your hand if you're an employer in this room. We have a couple of bosses in here. This is the guy that you could trust with every business secret, with your profits and all of that. I mean, this is a guy that you could send to the bank. This is a guy that you give the key to and he shows up and he does, he just does everything so well. He, He sounds like Jesus at this point, doesn't he? He ain't Jesus. We'll get to that in a little while. So that's his faithfulness. That's his trustworthiness that's represented. And that's something that Darius was looking for. And Daniel had this in in large measure. The other quality in verse 4 is blamelessness. How many of you have heard of that term? Blamelessness. It's not a word that we use today. We use faithfulness. We use trustworthy. We don't really use blameless. The Bible calls one who is without error or without fault, blameless. Okay, so that's usually the reference in Scripture, and and it goes two ways. You can be blameless before men, and you can be blameless before God. So a person of faith that believes in Jesus Christ is, in a sense, blameless before God, although we can get ourselves enraptured in sin and things, and we cannot be blameless in the sense that we should be. And really what blameless means is it means to be free of guilt. And I think primarily it means to be above reproach or to be not subject to blame, right? So blame means you got something going on. Blameless means you don't have something going on. So that's what it means. The Bible refers to one who is above reproach that is not subject to blame. He can't be blamed for something, wrongdoing. He is or she is Blameless. Now, it's important to know that blameless does not mean without sin. Blameless and perfection are not synonymous. They are not the same thing. So, blameless does not mean sinless perfection. Uh, No Christian lives an entirely sinless life. I don't care, you know, how much John Wesley promoted the idea of of perfection in this life, it's a false doctrine. You you will not be perfectly without sin in this life, in the life to come, in the coming kingdom. Yes, amen, hallelujah, can't wait. Jesus, come right now, you can finish the sermon. Amen? But you're not going to reach that level of perfection in this life. It doesn't mean that you can't be sanctified and grow in your holiness, but it it does not mean perfect, and quite honestly, no Christian lives entirely Sinless life, and that won't happen until we reach the glorified state in heaven. Blameless means that the Christian's life is free from sinful habits or behaviors that would, okay, not, okay. I'm not talking about being without sin. I'm just talking about patterns and habitual sin and these sorts of things that have a negative impact on their godly example to those around them and their representation of Christ's church. So if you're the type of person that's involved in constant sin, and people see that all the time, uh, you're not blameless. They can blame you for sin, and they always blame Jesus. They always, if they see it in you, they blame Jesus. They blame your religion. They blame your church. Isn't that what they do? Uh, I have, you know, done foolish things in front of unbelievers and stuff, and the first thing they do is lay seeds to Jesus, not really me. I told you Jesus wasn't real, and were well, you saying he wasn't a historical figure? I just think it's all a bunch of stupid. Because look at you, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm not Jesus. I'm saved by His grace, hallelujah. You need to be too. We're not perfect. Blah 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 blah. So I think that blameless means that the Christian does not give cause for those outside of the church to impugn the church's reputation. Now, I think that we would all agree that this is a really tough thing because it's difficult to walk in holiness. It's difficult, and that's a moment-by-moment thing of walking in the Spirit. It's very challenging. So I'm not arguing that, you know, we all need to shape up. It's very hard. Maybe some of us do need to shape up. But blameless just has to do with not being blamed for bad things and not impugning the, uh, the, um, uh, maybe the... uh, character of the church or more importantly the savior for which it died or he died for the church blameless means that no one can honestly honestly bring a charge or accusation against you okay what that means is that if they bring a charge against you it's not valid it's it, it you know if you do something foolish and they bring a charge against you then their charge is valid But if they get mad at you because you preach the gospel and do the things that you're called to do, you know that's not a valid charge. Not in God's eyes. In the world's eyes, it's a valid charge, but not in God's eyes. And who are we trying to please here? If we're trying to please men, then we've stopped trying to please God, is what Paul said. Not Paul Rogers, the Apostle Paul. If you're walking in God... And Paul Rogers probably says it too. If you're walking in God's will and somebody blames you for wrongdoing, and this happens all day, every day, because we live in backwards land, amen? Do we live in backwards land, where wrong is right, and right is wrong, and truth is the new hate speech, and right? It's like, I have never in my 47 years seen such backwardness. It's always been there, but today, to me, it's just reached a level, and I think that it's probably always been at this level because the world is a fallen place and there's nothing new under the sun. King Solomon, thank you. Hallelujah. But it just seems to me that things have gotten to a level of backwardsness that, that I've never seen before. So the deal is, is if somebody brings an accusation against you, but you're actually walking in God's will and you know, you're sharing Jesus and, and you know, the kind of things that God calls you to do, uh, you know, you're living a life worthy of the high calling, Somebody brings something against you, it's not your fault. You're blameless. You might not be blameless in the world's eyes, but who cares about the world's eyes? You're blameless in God's eyes. If somebody accuses you of, for instance, being dishonest, and it is true that you are a liar, or you've lied about something, or you haven't been honest about something, you're not blameless. They have something on you. You are blamed, and rightfully so. And I'm amazed at how frequently and often God uses unbelievers to expose my sin. He doesn't just use your brothers and sisters to do that. So often, you'll do something stupid. You'll pop off and say something, or you'll be dissonant. Whatever it is, some kind of sin you engage in, and then there's an unbeliever there who's watching you like a hawk. He's sitting up on a pole waiting for you to pop your head up out of that hole so he can grab you and devour you, right? Saw this the other day at the insulin park over there. It was awesome. This little thing was squiggling and flying in the air, hanging from the talons of a red hawk. I said, he's dead. Rachel said, he's dead. And there was another hawk chasing, trying to snag that meal. It was incredible. People are sitting and watching you and listening to you, and they are right there, and then, and then they'll catch you in things. And so often, it's true of us. And I think that that's God's grace Hey, you're setting a poor example before unbelievers. Straighten up is what God says. Act like my child. So you have doing foolish things and being blamed. You're not blameless. Doing God's will and being blamed. You are blameless. Now, if you are actively engaged in some kind of sin and, 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 People around you are not, and this is the thing, this is how deceptive our minds are and our flesh is. You could be involved in some kind of sin, and you know it. And when I say that, some of you are going, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, 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 right? Because this is what we do at times. We play church and play holy and all that, and we have something going on on a computer screen or whatever the whole time, and nobody knows. We need to understand that, If you're engaged, if I'm engaged in something like that and nobody knows and they're not blaming me for it, I'm not blameless. It doesn't just have to do with an accusation or somebody knowing what you do. You might be blameless, in a sense, before those around you because they're unaware of what you're doing, but you ain't blameless before God. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're involved in. And, and it, it suffers and grieves the Holy Spirit. And so this would be an invitation here from God in His grace to check yourself there and to repent and to confess those things. Because I think that I have heard it said, if you don't get caught, you're okay. So God doesn't see all things and God doesn't know all things and we don't have any sort of accountability on this side of glory. God knows everything that we're doing. and Does He want to unload a 50 cal on us because we're acting a fool? He wants us to repent and to enjoy the fullness of His joy and to glorify Him in all things. I know it's very hard. It's very challenging. But don't fool yourself. Nobody knows. I'm blameless not blameless. You're blamed before God. He knows what you're involved in. Realize that stuff. Confess that stuff. Move on. So, the qualities of faithfulness slash trustworthiness and blamelessness should mark every believer. Okay? Those are things that come packed in with our salvation. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and we're made a new creation, and we're, we're being transformed or conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1. And so these things come built in. There's going to be a, a faithfulness and trustworthiness aspect to who you are now. There's going to be a blamelessness aspect. These are things that we need to pursue. But if we fall our, or find ourselves falling short in either of these areas, we most certainly need to realize and repent, turn away from those things, confess them, to our Father, and if you're involved in something or were at one time and somebody's blamed you, part of your repentance will be doing the hard work of confessing that to your accuser. We have downplayed how far an apology, a sincere apology from a Christian who's blown it to anyone out there, we have downplayed how powerful that is. It goes a long ways for you to go to your accuser and say you were right, and I was not representing my Lord the way that I should have, and I apologize to you. And you know what? You're putting yourself on the line here by saying this. But if you see those kinds of things rear their ugly head again with me, you come and you tell me, because that's not who I want to be. I, that goes so. That is countercultural. Because the world says, hide it, it's not really a big deal, who cares, people don't have any value, it doesn't matter what their opinions are, what matters is your feelings and your emotions, you have just been countercultural. you have been like a Christian when you go and make things right for what you've done. Because the world is not a, we don't live in a reconciling world, we live in a hiding world, in a nasty place that says, you know, it, it, you didn't really do anything wrong, that justifies all sin and wickedness and our behavior, and not only justifies, but exalts it to the highest levels and puts it on signs at marches and dresses in these crazy suits that represent the human anatomy. What? I, I could not believe what I was seeing on television over the last couple of weeks. And then I realize, without Christ, I would probably be there alongside fighting for my rights. We're all just an inch away. Be careful where you stand, lest ye fall. But we live in a world that celebrates sin and promotes it and and, and is increasing in that and says to you, you're not actually sinning, you're not actually doing anything wrong, you're being you as Christians we are not to be deceived. He who says he has no sin is deceived. First John, I believe. If we say that we're without sin, we are deceived, I think is what the Scripture says. And so, let's, let's get real. Let's get real starting today. Let's analyze ourselves. Let's confess our sins. Let's make things right with people. That could be the turning point in your life, right now. That might be what's holding you up and holding you back. Could be. Certainly has been in my life, on and off. Daniel had these amazing qualities, and I think that that's why he qualified, or at least Darius said, wow, he's one of my guys, and that he was appointed to this incredible position, which is referred to as high official Look at 2B. And this little half verse is really the key to this entire passage. If we we don't have what is said in 2B, then then this, this lion's den doesn't make any sense. And this is something that I discovered in the last week. I was just like, man, Lord, I love you so much more for showing me this so that I could properly understand why things happened the way that they did here. This is incredible. This little thing, man, without this, whew, we, we just, we, we go to something else. Most important, I think one of the most important verses in six, because it shows us why Daniel gained adversaries, which led to his execution. Amen? You're like, I'm not amending you yet. I need to know why. <laughs> 2b, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. <laughs> Do you see what just happened there? Do you see why the high officials were appointed? It's right there. Okay, so the satraps oversaw provinces or districts it was the responsibility of the satraps to manage the various leaders in their districts underneath their authority uh, maybe judges law enforcement tax collectors etc cetera, etc cetera, and to collect and deliver revenue to the king that is the job of the satraps they are like a governor over a state and they manage all of the other leaders downstream, including sheriffs and everything. And their ultimate responsibility is to keep order and peace in their districts and to collect revenue and to make sure that that revenue makes it to the king's treasury. Because back in these days, it really was good to be king. Because you got to siphon cash out of all your people. These kings were insanely wealthy, far wealthier than Donald Trump or people of today. Because they just amassed so much gold and silver, precious jewels and things. So these satraps had a massively high responsible or highly responsible position to collect revenue for the king. And the potential for corruption was extraordinarily high. It would be easy for a satrap to hold back some cash for himself without the king's knowledge or to engage in some other form of corruption and theft. You think about it. The satrap was responsible for gathering revenue from all of his leaders and collectors, and then on the way to the bank, he could easily slide out 20 Gs for himself. Nobody would know. And these kinds of things happened in in, in a huge way back in these days as I do think they do today in in many countries and maybe even in our own, in a sense. Um, Darius was no dummy. He was a smart king. He was aware of potential corruption and as a precautionary measure, because his entire cabinet and setup for government looks quite different from Nebuchadnezzar's. He, He, as a precautionary measure, set it up so that the satraps had to give an account to the high officials. They had to report their resource and what they brought in and all of that. Everything that they were doing in all facets as well as the revenue collection, they had to report it to the high officials. The satraps had to report to Daniel and two other people. And it was uh, the high officials' job to make sure that the king, it's right in the text, what? Suffered no loss. So the high officials were kind of like the king's treasurers or accountants, if you will, but at a whole nother level than just regular old CPA, which is a pretty high level. Lots and lots of revenue was being collected by the satraps. And then they passed this revenue to the high officials who would record and maybe deposit the funds into the king's treasury or have that done by someone else who was trustworthy. If a high official discovered an inconsistency, it would have been his job to launch an investigation. Well, Frank, I'm looking at the numbers here and they don't match up. Uh, There's an inconsistency here with gold and it doesn't match up, and we need to figure out what happened, what's going on. Well, I don't know. Okay, well, we're going to have to investigate. Okay, so this is like an accountability, if you will, for these high officials. They would launch an investigation or something of that nature to figure out why there's an inconsistency, why there's something that doesn't line up and match. If one of these high officials found, it was their job, if they found corruption, then it was his job to make sure that the perpetrator was prosecuted. Now, here's the thing. Here's where Daniel comes in. Daniel is trustworthy at the highest level, faithful and blameless. What happens when you have have potential for corruption and maybe some corruption playing out? What happens when the guy gets employed and he doesn't play games and he's on top of everything and he's honest and trustworthy and all of that? What does that person pose to everyone else downstream? He is a major threat to those around him because he plays by the rules. He does not mess around. Daniel posed a threat to would-be crooks because of his trustworthiness, because of his faithfulness, because of his honesty. He was not the type, type of person who would go along with a scam, okay, hey, I got something for you, dude, that, you know, I know you make pretty good money, but let me tell you, we can take it to a whole nother level, brah. He was not the kind of person who would be persuaded, right, to engage in some sort of a scam that would benefit him. Again, he served with integrity and all this, but he's serving the king of kings too. So he's got his heart right here. I'm not gonna be drug into this. Thing. He's not the type of person that would be drugged into that. He's not the type of person who would keep information from the king. Well, I know you guys got that little side thing going, and I'm just going to turn my, my face and not pay attention to it. That's, that's not the way homey rolled. He would not do things that way. And you know what? He wasn't a goody two-shoes. He was righteous. <laughs> you know, because people will say, well, he was one of them straight-shooting goody two-shoes. Yeah, he wasn't a goody two-shoes. A righteous person does what is right. You know, and I've even heard Christians ridicule, you know, other Christians for pursuing righteousness and for pursuing holiness. And you're a legalist. You're a legalist, you know, because you choose not to drink. Or you're a legalist because, oh, come on. It's not right for some people to drink. You're not a legalist if you choose to obey God and pursue a holy life. You're doing what you're supposed to do. And today in the church, we've got, you know, we've got Christian brothers and sisters saying, oh, he's a goody-two-shoes, he doesn't do this. And Daniel, he was a goody-two-shoes. He wasn't a goody-two-shoes. He was a righteous man. Um, The other day I was uh, in a class, and uh, a guy just completely blew me out. Um, You know, I I was in this class with somebody, and and, um, there was a... I don't want to say names or anything, but there was a, a table that had a bunch of, you know, old inventory on it and things that were marked way down. And uh, one guy, you know, picks up a product off of it and he's looking at it and, and says, wow, you know, I'm going to buy this and goes and buys it and it was $10 and he brought it back to me and showed it to me and I just told him, I said, you know, I know they made a mistake because that item should not have been nine ninety-nine. And then I looked it up on Amazon and showed him, and it was $139. And I said, so if they were to discount that on a discount table, they would have probably sold it for $70 or $80 or their cost or whatever. So I felt, and there were like four things that looked exactly the same, and it was in the same kind of sleeve packaged like all the rest. So it looked like, you know, somebody took all four and said, we have four of these and put them out. Well, one of these higher price items made its way into that. And I didn't blame him or say anything. All I said was, you've already purchased it, but I would probably just take it to the counter and just make sure that they didn't make a mistake. He looks at me and says, you are the stupidest person on the face of the earth. Then I might have to pay more. And I said, but wouldn't a clear conscience be worth it? My conscience is clear. I said, your conscience isn't cleared it's seared. You don't care. And he blew me out and said, you're an idiot, and, you know, you've got to take advantage of these things when they happen, and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, good night. I felt like the goody two-shoe. And then he looks at me and says, now, don't you go up there and tell him. Because I was like, teacher, you know, I didn't want to do that. But, right, you know, that kid, that annoying kid in class, Phil's chewing gum, you know. Looked like a horse, you know. But I I just thought, wow, there's a great example of that where somebody is clearly not acting on integrity and being faithful and all of that. kind of blew my mind. And he got all mad at me for trying to help him do the right thing. Heaven forbid, right? And I don't think he's a believer, and I don't expect that of him, but (laughs) does that really apply to just believers? No. Anyways, I told him, I hope you enjoy your item, and it goes out in six months. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right. And he's like, you know, he's using him. <laughs> it shocks him, you know, or something it's like, told you, brother. Uh, you know, is, is he a terrible person and all of that? Are you kidding me? If, if I was in his shoes, I would have been tempted just to keep it a secret too, right? Whenever we're given, an, this is the flesh again, whenever we're given an opportunity to come up and we feel like, well, we shouldn't come up to that level, but I can, Woo, we usually jump on that train, don't we? Now, some of the satraps, I believe this is how it played out, some of the satraps knew, they were familiar with Daniel enough to know that he was faithful and trustworthy, and they felt threatened by his appointment because he could bring them down if they were involved in something. And that's the question that I kept asking myself. Why did, they, why did it lead to him being thrown into the lions? And why did they get so upset with him and conspire and do all that they could to to ruin his reputation and destroy him they must have had something really really big to hide right they must have been involved in something what were they hiding must have been pretty big because the following verses show that they did everything they could to destroy his reputation and eliminate him look at three and that's all coming in the narrative we'll get into all that later Then this Daniel, we're still talking about Daniel's exaltation, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, we need to know that verse 3 played into what happened with these guys as well. Here's Daniel, this Hebrew, this import, this exile, if you will, this Judean who's Uh, basically a dog in in the satraps' eyes because they're all, you know, Medo-Persian or whatever, there was a jealousy factor here. There was an envy here, too. They did not like the fact that he was this goody two-shoes and can blow them out at any moment, and they did not like the fact that he was exalted to this position, which likely all of them thought they were entitled to. So they burned with envy, they burned with jealousy, It says, an excellent spirit was in him. This is a reference to his ability to interpret dreams and mysteries and riddles and solve complex problems. This special God given anointing or ability caused him literally to rise above the other high officials, the other two guys, and the satraps. And Darius took notice of Daniel's special uniqueness, his commitment, and all of that, but also the fact that he had this. Strange and mysterious spirit that something he had, like the spirit of the gods in him, if you will, is what they thought it was, but I believe it was the Holy Spirit. He took notice of Daniel's uniqueness and he planned to exalt him up to really the highest possible level, with the exception of king, putting him over the entire kingdom, which means that he would have made him a prince. He would have made him a prince. Now, this stirred up envy and jealousy among Daniel's peers and the traps. His exaltation infuriated them. No Judean deserved a position like this. They didn't like the position he was in and then for him to be exalted even higher uh, because God is good. Man, that just roasted them. They were so ticked off. They were infuriated. And they were determined to do something about it. Okay? And we'll begin to look at that next Sunday, Lord willing. We'll look at their devilish plan. So let's make a few parallels between Daniel and Jesus as we begin to wrap it up. And the parallels are just awesome. They really are. And I think that, yeah. Yeah. Daniel was trustworthy, right? Faithful and blameless. But, as we'll see next week, people accused him of wrongdoing, right? And this guy walked a, a tight line for the Lord. He, he was a holy man. He was a righteous man. He guarded himself, and he was trustworthy. He had proven that. He was blameless. People could not bring an offense against him that was legit, Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is blameless. But people accused him of wrongdoing, didn't they? Didn't they? Man, did they ever. They, man. Daniel, because of his faithfulness, because of his trustworthiness, he posed a threat to would-be crooks, didn't he? Jesus posed a threat to religious crooks and hypocrites, didn't he? Boy, did he ever! Did he not tick off those religious leaders who were all wrapped up in themselves and all engaged in every form and aspect of hypocrisy, playing religion, making a good show, but having being filled with the bones of dead men, who were only religious on the exterior and not connected to God on the interior. Jesus, in his righteousness and in his wisdom and discernment and understanding of humanity and understanding of his adversaries, man, he was in the business of exposing them. Go back and read the Gospels. Jesus never answered his adversaries' questions with what we would call answers. He always answered his adversaries' questions with questions that were meant to expose their death and their hypocrisy and it got him killed. He was a threat to religious crooks and hypocrites, to those who seek to glorify themselves and to try to save themselves. Daniel's exaltation, his rise to position and power, brought about envy and jealousy among his adversaries Jesus' exaltation caused envy and jealousy among His adversaries. The Pharisees and the scribes and all of those religious leaders weren't just upset with and blaming Jesus uh, because He posed a threat to who they were. They, they hated Him. They were jealous of who He was and, and how He presented the truth and how He had followers and wasn't really that many at the end of it all. Now it is. But, I mean, they were jealous of him. They burned with bitter envy over him. I'm reminded of how some of John the Baptist's own disciples got a little mixed up in their jealousy. And, hey, man, the dude on the other side of the river is now baptizing more people than you. What is going on, John? He must increase. I must decrease. Psh, psh. People were envious and jealous of Jesus' exaltation. And his exaltation today, seated at the right hand throne of God, at the right hand of the throne of God, infuriates prideful people. There's no way this Jewish carpenter scourge. This is what Jews would say of him. No, 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 no. No. He's a false Messiah. King Darius planned, my favorite, my favorite of the parallels, King Darius planned to set Daniel over his whole kingdom. The Father has set Jesus over the heavens and the earth. The parallels here, and I'm sure there's more, are amazing And no doubt, Daniel was an amazing man of God. But Jesus is an amazing Savior. The point of this text is to point us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the better Daniel, is he not? In everything that that Daniel excelled at and was good at, Jesus was better. Jesus was greater. Jesus is greater. And He alone deserves our adoration and our love and our obedience. But we can certainly learn from Daniel's example, right? What have we learned? Our target for this week is faithfulness and blamelessness. Where do you stand with these two things? Have you been faithful to the Lord Jesus by walking in His ways? Have you been blameless before the people around you? Has someone accused you of wrongdoing? Are they mad because of your righteousness? Great! Or are they mad at you? Are they accusing you because of your foolishness? What is the Holy Spirit revealing to you in this moment? And what is He calling you to do about it so that you can get back in step with the will of God?